This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, alternative media for discerning minds. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members for your loyalty and support. And before we start, you know, I don't ask for much, but I need a big favor from all of you. The growth of this show has not been determined by ambitions or advertising, but simply by word of mouth. It is you, and only you, who have helped us be where we are today. Here's where I need your help. Go to our website, veritasshow.com, if you're not already there. Right in our homepage, you will see a link on the left side of the screen that will take you to the top paranormal sites. This is a list of the world's most popular paranormal sites. I know, Veritas is not only a paranormal show, but we certainly discuss the topic. We cover everything that's relevant. At any rate, we were listed there yesterday and started at position number 300 at the bottom. In less than 24 hours, we're already at position number 21 at the time of this recording. And these are people who saw the announcement on Facebook 
and at our forum only. Imagine what you can do for us. You can vote once a day. So if you voted yesterday, please vote again. Tell everyone you know to vote. I'm so humbled by your comments left there. Who would have thought we would be here without any advertising or commercial sponsorship? So please, it doesn't cost you anything, and it only takes a few seconds. Go to VeritasShow.com, and you will see the link on the left. Click on it and vote. And if you want to leave a comment, that's appreciated too. Let's put Veritas in the top 10 category. And if we can climb higher, that's even better. Just know, it is you who will make it happen. So just stop this program. Yes, right now, don't worry. I'll be here waiting. Vote and come back. Thank you. You may already be familiar with tonight's special guest. I recorded one of his lectures last November. He's Dr. Claude Swanson, a PhD physicist with a distinguished educational background. His journey began as a study of extraordinary human abilities, remote viewing, ESP, psychokinesis, levitation, teleportation, out-of-body experience, survival of the soul, and more. Dr. Swanson has collected and will discuss the best scientific evidence. Some of them have been demonstrated in the laboratory with statistics of billions to one against chance. In other words, these abilities are real. Dr. Claude Swanson will be with us shortly. To listen to tonight's interview and all our interviews, become a member. You will receive instant access to all of them. And remember, Veritas survives on your voluntary subscriptions only. So if you've been listening to the first segment of the show for some time, don't you think it's time to listen to the entire show and support our work? Just visit our website, VeritasShow.com, click on the subscribe link, and take Veritas with you. And you can now download the latest show via the iTunes link. That simple. And the 8GB metal case USB drive filled with Season 2, the best music of 2010, the Paul Benowitz letters, and NASA footage that is no longer on their catalog is now available for sale. Season 1 is still available too. You can also buy both USB drives with Seasons 1 and 2 and save on shipping. Just go to the Veritas store and place your order. And with this weather, don't forget and get your MMS right from us. And if you still don't know what MMS is, go to our past shows and find the interview with Jim Humble, entitled Jim Humble versus the FDA. You won't regret it. And this is another announcement. The International UFO Congress is taking place from February 23rd through the 27th in Fountain Hills, Arizona. Take a look at all the wonderful speakers. I will be there. Will you? If you haven't made your reservation yet, I encourage you to do so as soon as possible. Just click on the banner on our website for more information and to reserve. I hope to see a lot of you there. And a lot of you have been asking me to discuss the global animal die-offs, the weather, earthquakes, volcanoes, and the polar shift. So I have a friend of this show back for another discussion in the next few days. Dr. Brooks Agnew has connected some dots. He has found that the blackbirds that died and fell from the sky in Arkansas died because they stopped breathing. Oxygen stopped. The same is happening with the dead fish. We'll discuss the polar shift and the cold weather too. According to him, an Irish study concludes the Gulf Stream has not stopped. However, 
It is something else. So I hope you don't miss this interview coming very soon. I want to send a congratulatory message to our brothers and sisters in Egypt. Today is February 11th, 2011. It's a great moment in Egypt's history. I remember when the Tunisia revolution started. I created a thread at our forum and expected the same outcome for Egypt. There was a lot of trepidation, but you can't compare 11 million to 85 million people. It was only a matter of time. However, last night I expected Mubarak to resign, and he did exactly the opposite. He was recalcitrant in his views and thought that he could remain in power. He should have left last night with dignity. And the fact that he appointed the chief of intelligence as his vice president and was transferring power to him was not well received. His vice president, Omar Suleiman, was personally responsible for keeping the people repressed and the person responsible for enforcing extraordinary renditions for the CIA. If you don't know what extraordinary renditions are, Google it. I knew there was no way the frustration of the people could continue for much longer. Friday, February 11th, 2011, is a historic day for Egypt. And as Stuart Swetlow said last week, 11-11 means a new beginning. Today's date is also 32 years to the day of the establishment of the Islamic Republic of Iran. But the Egyptian revolution seems to have been a secular one, with no mullahs in sight. We saw Christians protecting Muslims while praying, etc. People from multi-religious and multi-economic backgrounds united toward one common goal. That common goal has now been achieved, and I honestly wish I was there to celebrate it with you. We know the power has been transferred to the only trusted institution, the military. The question is, what comes next? Hopefully, the people will remain in control and another subverted puppet will not emerge. Dictators around the world, you know who you are? Take notice. You are probably and hopefully next. And since tonight's show deals with the science of the paranormal, I'd like to share a couple of synchronicities with you. Last Sunday, I came to the studio early in the morning. I have a full wall of CDs. And sometimes, instead of choosing a CD to listen to while I work, I simply close my eyes and pick one at random. Almost like spinning a globe and choosing a country. Well, this time I picked Gary Moore's After the War CD, the only CD I have of this artist. I put the CD in my player and then went on the internet to check the headlines. The very first headline that appeared read, Thin Lissy's Guitarist. Gary Moore, found dead in Spanish Hotel. What are the chances that I would pick this CD from thousands to then find out the artist just died? It's almost like the day I was thinking of Colonel Wendell Stevens, and all of a sudden, I received a telephone call from someone alerting me of an estate sale that included hundreds of UFO publications, including collector's items from Colonel Stevens. The following day, prior to retrieving the items, I received another phone call telling me that Wendell Stevens had passed away. Now, the other story I'd like to share comes from one of our members. It's a longer story, but I'll summarize it. This Veritas member went on a bike ride 
this weekend while listening to last week's show with Stuart Swetlow. Immediately after, we talked about the number 111 and how you can add the last digits of your birth date plus the age you will be this year, and it adds to 111. Well, the moment he heard that, well, bike riding, a sign on the pavement read 111 in red at that exact moment. He said he had to return and take a picture, which he has sent to me, and I posted it at their forum. You see, we may attribute this to chance or coincidence, Well, that's why I'm glad we're having Dr. Claude Swanson on tonight. I'm sure most of you have similar stories to share, and I'm really curious to know about them. So I've opened a thread at the forum so you can share your synchronicity stories with all of us. Oh, and a lot of you have emailed me in the past few months asking when Dr. Judy Wood's book would be out. Well, I have some good news for you. The book is ready to ship. So go to her website... Where did the towers go.com. As simple as that. Where did the towers go.com. It's a 500-page hardcover book filled with images and impeccable analysis. If you thought my interviews with Dr. Judy Wood were revealing, well, you better buckle up when you read this book because your views about 9/11 will never be the same. And if you need to get in touch with me, just go to our website and click on the contact button. And join me on Facebook. And now, get ready for a discussion that will open your mind to new possibilities. We will discuss the latest scientific evidence proving the existence of the paranormal. Present physics can be modified to understand and explain some of these strange phenomena and may go a long way to healing the ancient split between science and spirituality. Remote viewing extrasensory perception, psychokinesis, cell-to-cell communication, group consciousness, levitation, teleportation, prodigies, out-of-body experience, near-death experience, and much more with Dr. Claude Swanson, who's coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. right here on the Veritas show is supplied by the independent artists from jamendo.com if you hear a song you like go over to our homepage veritasshow.com click on the guest look up the song and download it you can even buy the group's CDs in many cases right there at jamendo.com Jeff Harmon, and you are listening to The Veritas Show. Dr. Claude Swanson was educated as a physicist at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, and Princeton University. During those years, he worked at the MIT Science Teaching Center, Brookhaven National Laboratory, and a Virginia cyclotron in the summer. At Princeton, he received the National Science Foundation Fellowship and Putnam Fellowship. His PhD thesis at Princeton was done in the Gravity Group, which focuses on experimental cosmology and astronomy. 
Swanson conducted postgraduate work at Princeton and Cornell Universities on the design of superconducting plasma containment vessels for fusion energy systems. He then began work for Aeronautical Research Associates of Princeton, a consulting company, and later formed his own consulting company, which carried out studies in applied physics for commercial and governmental agencies, including DuPont, United Technologies, the U.S. Army and Navy, DARPA, and the CIA, among many others. For the last 15 years, interspersed with his conventional professional career in applied physics, Dr. Swanson has pursued investigations into unconventional physics. His principal interest has been unified field theory, the so-called theory of everything, which could explain the universe at the deepest possible level. This has led him to investigate many aspects of the paranormal, which appear to be completely real phenomena which violate our present science. Paranormal phenomena, which have now been proven in the laboratory in many cases, offer a window into the deeper universe, the mysteries of consciousness, and unlock new forces and principles which conventional science has only begun to glimpse. And directly from Tucson, Arizona, I'm honored and privileged to introduce Dr. Claude Swanson for the first time on Veritas. Hello, Dr. Swanson, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Hi, Mel. Great to be here. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Glad to have you on. And in addition to the bio I just read, Dr. Swanson, I want to let the audience know how I got to meet you. A few months ago, folks, you've heard me say that I went to a, an estate sale that had hundreds and hundreds of books on the paranormal, science, UFOs, you name it. And the person who referred me reserved the right to keep a book or two if he, if he chose to. And the book he chose to keep was Dr. Claude Swanson's book. And we'll talk about it throughout the show. It was so special that he told me, you have to have Dr. Claude Swanson on your show. One day he called me and said, Dr. Claude Swanson is in town and he's going to be lecturing. So I immediately went, filmed a, a wonderful lecture that's available on our website at Veritas TV. But tonight, we're going to do a full show. But just to dive into it, Dr. Swanson, in addition to the bio that I just read, give us some history of yourself. How did you get here? I'm always curious as to how someone like you from academia can cross from the scientific side to perhaps an area that science frowns upon. Like you, I always wanted to know the why of everything, how the universe works. Take us back to the moment when you knew you had to scientifically prove the paranormal. Well, I guess I'm like you, Mel, in that I've also been also curious about why and how things work. That's been my drive, I guess, for most of my life, just always wanting to understand uh, at a deeper level how things work. And uh, when I was a young boy, I used to look out at the stars at night, as many of us uh, did. And uh, of course, they're it can be very clear and lots and lots of stars visible throughout in the country at night. And, um, you know, they, they seem so close, but you can almost touch them. You can play games and imagine stepping off into space. Uh, one of the things that I did was uh, standing up and spinning around, and uh, the stars above you appear to spin as you turn around. And there's this force called centrifugal force that pulls your arms up from your sides when you're spinning. And the thought occurred to me even then, I wonder if there's some connection between the motion of the stars and the distant matter and the forces we feel like centrifugal force uh, here on Earth. 
Uh, turns out there's an old um, anomaly or a puzzle uh, in physics, even going back to Newton's Isaac Newton's day, called the Newton Bucket Experiment, uh, because even though uh, people thought that all frames were pretty much similar, uh, that one that one frame in which the bucket of water is spinning is the is the frame where the surface of the water takes on a parabolic shape. It, it dips in the middle, showing that centrifugal force effect. Uh, only when it stops rotating uh, does it, the water go flat. So uh, there's been a, a theory or a suspicion for a long time in physics of this connection between distant matter and the forces that feel. Uh, when I was in uh, college, I got a little bit of math under my belt and began doing some calculations, and I could actually uh, show that there was that there could be an effect there from the distant matter that would cause centrifugal force. I took it to my my teacher, uh, Anthony French, and he said, "Well, uh, you know about uh, Mach's principle, don't you?" And I didn't. Um, it turns out that Ernst Mach, a German philosopher for whom we have the Mach number named after, um, came up with this idea that the distant matter affects the local forces. And Einstein uh, was very impressed with that and tried to use it in general relativity. So I think this idea of a connection, of of looking for some larger principle that ties things together has always been uh, driving me. And of course, after after going through the conventional education at at MIT and in Princeton, um, you know, you, you kind of learn all the conventional answers, but it felt kind of hollow to me. It didn't really feel like this theory held together in any deep way. It didn't really answer any deep uh, questions. And um, I I kept working on my own ideas. And then in the mid-80s, I began hearing rumors about something called remote viewing. Now, remote viewing, um, you know, and your listeners probably know, you know, is the ability of people with certain practices to obtain information uh, from far away in space and in time through basically a psychic process. Um, now I was taught not to believe in, in such things. They're all big hoaxes. It's all just, you know, people's imagination. But I was getting, uh, you know, very strong information that these things were real, and if they are real, then our laws of physics have to be different. So that was kind of what started me on this quest to look into all of the other ideas people have talked about that are not considered standard, not considered respectable, but that actually in many cases there's very good evidence for them. And if we're ever going to have a real physics, a real correct understanding of how the universe works, uh, we have to include those things. So that's really how I got on this uh, particular path. And we're definitely going to be talking more about uh, remote viewing throughout the interview because that's a that's an important portion of your your book. By the way, may I call you Claude? Please. Okay. Please do. When I think of, sure, thank you. It, when I think of a synchronized universe, Claude, I think of the moon, and that it precisely covers the sun during an eclipse. Not more, not less, just precisely. I think of latitude 19.47 and how not only on Earth, but the moon, other planets, and the sun display certain characteristics. Have you looked into latitude 19.5 out of curiosity? Uh, Not very strongly. I've heard Richard Hoagland talk about it, and, um, you know, I'm I'm sort of aware that there are some sacred geometric connections, but I haven't looked into it very much. How about the, the, the fact that when there's a an eclipse 
the moon covers the sun just precisely. When you say synchronized uh, universe, the synchronized universe model, what do you mean? Okay, uh, the synchronized universe model really arose from trying to uh, take into account all the different paranormal phenomena. In, in my first book, Synchronized Universe, I go through chapter by chapter a variety of different types of, of phenomena that, are, that don't fit in with Western science. You know, Western science can't explain it, and therefore Western science would prefer that these things just go away. Uh, ESP is one of them. Remote viewing is one of them. Psychokinesis or affecting things at a distance is another example. The out-of-body experience, near-death experiences, a whole range of phenomena. However, at the present time, it turns out that there are labs like the Princeton Pear Lab that worked for 30 years plus, and there are some labs still doing this today, piling up very solid scientific evidence showing that these effects are real. Our science can't just dis dismiss them. In fact, the odds against chance for these effects being real are now trillions to one because we have so much data showing that these effects are real. Um, what that means is that matter and forces don't behave the way our Western science thought they did. We have examples of yogis and very um, accomplished uh, people in, in China who can move things through walls, who can teleport things, uh, which is totally science fiction as far as Western science is concerned. But what it tells us is that matter is not what we thought it was, that there is a permeability to it. It can be moved and, and, and transmitted in ways that tell us there's some other aspect of matter. Uh, in the same way with ghosts and spirits, they all are clues to us that our idea of matter is, is obsolete. The old idea of matter is kind of the Newtonian idea. It's like a billiard ball, something solid. Uh, you can't pass something through it. You can't pass it through a wall. Um, but if you start looking at all the data for paranormal phenomena, you have to look for some other idea about the nature of matter. The first thing you notice is that at the quantum level, at the atomic level, most of matter is empty space. Okay, particles, which have the mass in them, are tiny little points of energy moving around, orbiting each other with vast distances between them. So the atom, for example, is 99.99% empty. Um, and it's, it's, really, it's really the way radiation and energy come in to move these things around that determine the nature of matter. So if you back off to a, a view of matter like that, then you start to think, well, wait a minute, it's not something solid. It actually involves energy transmission uh, among these very tiny little objects we call protons, electrons, and neutrons. Um, so the next step in, in my process was to say, well, what would it take to make something like that uh, permeable, to make it possible for to pass through it? We have all kinds of examples of people during out-of-body experiences passing right through walls, uh, plus even, even more dramatic examples than that. How could that be possible? The idea of the synchronized universe came from that. The idea would be that maybe matter at the very smallest scale uh, really interacts 
when particles can see other particles. When we have the, typically the forces between particles uh, primarily are exerted when particles are moving toward each other um, in, in this model. And so there's, there's a lining up, and I'm not going to go into it uh, in too much detail because it's a little hard without pictures, but in the back of my book, uh, Synchronized Universe, I have the diagrams that make it a whole lot easier to understand. But the bottom line is that particles experience other particles when there's a synchronization, when there's a lining up and a synchronization uh, in the same way that when you have a, a electric fan spinning around uh, and you shine a strobe light on it and it flashes, if your flashing rate matches the spinning rate of the fan, those fan blades appear to be solid and they appear to be standing still. That's a synchronization. If you shift the frequency of your uh, strobe light, the fan blades disappear. They appear not to be there at all. So that's what happens when things don't synchronize. The same idea is in the synchronized universe model that when particles are synchronized, they experience forces. They say, you're solid, I'm solid, uh, this is matter, and we're all in the same material universe. If you shift the frequency a little bit, then they miss each other, they don't interact, they don't experience a force on the average, and they go away. They appear to disappear, they become transparent, you can pass right through them. So that's one of the basic ideas in the synchronized universe model for how it's possible to uh, enter the spirit realm, for example, or to teleport, or to go through solid objects, things like that. So uh, that's really how, it, how the idea arose. And I'm so excited about this book, folks, The Synchronized Universe, The New, si New Science of the Paranormal. As we progress in the interview, you'll realize how lucky we are to have Dr. Claude Swanson here, because if it was not because Dr. Swanson comes from academia and his impeccable credentials, I would think that I'm talking with somebody about a science fiction book, but it's absolutely not. In the introduction of your first book, you talk about the Hopi prophecy and the conflict of spiritualism and materialism. That's how you started the book. At one point in time, Claude, spirituality and, let's say, science coexisted in a symbiotic way. What happened, and do you think the world is the way it is today because of that separation? Oh, well, that's a big question. <laughs> I, 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 it would, I think there are lots and lots of reasons why the world is the way it is today, and there's probably not a single separation. Uh, some people would say that the divine feminine uh, was lost uh, in modern Judeo-Christianity, you know, that yes. uh, certain nurturing aspects of previous religions that we gave up uh, by going to a more judgmental form of religion. I mean, there's a whole, whole lot of ways one could analyze uh, the nature of our modern society and why, why we are the way we are. But, but certainly with the, with the Middle Ages, uh, there was a conflict because um, the Catholic Church had maintained uh, the belief that Aristotle uh, was infallible, and he had an old physics from the Greek times and some very set ideas about how the universe worked. And uh, Galileo and a few other modern physicists uh, of that time, 500 years ago or whatever, began realizing that the old pictures weren't working uh, at that time, that uh, the Earth moved around the sun, uh, that this moon orbited the Earth, uh, that they were round spheres out in space. Uh, Giordano Bruno uh, 
one of the um, one of the great writers and scientists of that time uh, wrote a very eloquent and persuasive book, even proposing that our sun was not the only sun, that it was one star of millions filling the universe. There could be civilized civilizations on other planets, on other stars throughout the universe, you know, and that we were just one of a great many. Uh, of course, he was burned at the stake for that. Uh, the Catholic Church didn't exactly, you know, encourage freedom of speech on some of these subjects. And I think we're probably suffering from some of those battles still today. There's a polarization. Uh, people tend to think, well, you're either uh, you're religious or you're scientific. You can't be both. Right. Um, and that's that's probably where we are today. I mean, what I see, and I talk about this in the book, is uh, that we are learning more about science and as we go deeper, we're starting to notice that there are forces uh, that involve things that we think of as spiritual. I mean, that the out-of-body experience involves an energy, an energy which moves beyond the physical body, uh, but can be detected and has been detected. Um, so we're starting to learn about some of the spiritual forces and in, in a way prove some of the uh, things that uh, you find in the Bible as miracles. Uh, today we find that there are many people who can do energy healing, for example. Uh, there is a famous uh, Qigong master in China who has brought back uh, boiled uh, shrimp from the dead on her plate at dinner parties and had them crawling around on her plate. I mean, in other words, bringing life back from death. Um, there, there's probably no end to what is possible with the energies that we create in the mind and the body. Uh, so it, to me, it's a frontier. It's, it's a new frontier where science can go back and start to look at things that are spiritual, things that we thought of as being uh, impossible uh, by scientific definitions. And now we're starting to learn that there's a new science emerging where these two come together again and where, um, where, where the science and the spirit can be part of a larger view of the universe. So that's sort of what I'm hoping for, and uh, that's what the Hopis are talking about. They're saying that that's really what we need to get to if we're going to get through some of the tumultuous times that you know that we're facing. And on the first chapter of your book, you discuss a topic that is in so much demand all the time. I get email from people asking me, Mel, when are you going to do a show or, or discuss the topic of remote viewing? There are two quotes, with, with your permission, that I'd like to read from the book. The first one comes from Dr. Jessica, is it Ut or Ut? Jessica Utz, uh, Utz, uh -huh. Utz. Yeah. Uh, a member of the CIA review panel on remote viewing. She says, quote, using these standards apply to any other area of science, it is concluded that psychic functioning has been well established, unquote. And the second quote comes from Major General Edmund Thompson, U.S. Army Assistant Chief of Staff for Intelligence. He said, quote, I never like to get into debates with the skeptics because if you didn't believe that remote viewing was real, you hadn't done your homework, unquote. For the audience, give us the definition of remote viewing, precognition, and psi, or psychokinesis. Uh, well, remote viewing is a is a procedure that was developed by the military in the 1970s, which is a, a very precise protocol. It's a system of steps that you go through uh, from your initial 
exposure to the, quote, target, which might be a number, it might be a sealed box, it might be a sealed envelope, whatever it is, something that gives the remote viewer no information about the target except you know, except just to point him in the direction, no, no information. So, so it's a set of steps that you go through that lead the uh, the viewer to get closer and closer to the uh, to the target through a completely psychic process. Um, and I can go into more detail later on that if you're interested. But um, because it's so specific, and because uh, the military discovered that if you keep a person busy with these steps, then you'll the left brain, the analytical part, that always wants to jump in and start making sense of it. You keep you keep that part busy too, and therefore it doesn't interfere with the uh, the, the process, and you get much better data. So that's uh, one definition of, of remote viewing. Uh, there's really no limit essentially to the uh, distances you can go or the targets can be from you or the time shift between you and the target. Um, uh, PK or psychokinesis, uh, sometimes called mind over matter, involves affecting things at a distance, causing uh, changes to things which can be measured at a distance. Uh, What was your other uh, question on? Precognition. Oh, precognition. Well, yeah. precognition it involves getting information from the future. So, uh, some some type of of way of um, of showing that the information that you have um, is coming from an event that has not yet been decided, but will be at some point in the future. And since we always like to discuss examples, you you experienced a remove you in session. Uh, you were part of it. Tell us about what your experience was, what the target was, and how did that go? Sure. Um, I took three courses in remote viewing in the 1990s. Uh, what happened was that the military program uh, ended in the early 90s, and um, the, uh, the CIA claimed that it didn't work. However, uh, from the Jessica Hutz quote and from other people's uh, quotes, such as uh, John McMonigle, one of the top remote viewers in the program, it's very clear that it did work, and they were, the real problem was that they were about to have the whole thing leaked, so they ended it themselves. Uh, as a result, the people in the program all uh, became members of, uh, a lot of them started their own remote viewing schools. Several of the best remote viewers began their own programs uh, to teach people how to do it. Um, and one of them, uh, uh, one of them taught uh, Courtney Brown, who was a professor at Emory University, uh, so he began uh, teaching this course in Atlanta uh, in the mid-90s, and I took three of his courses. In a typical, um, I, I gave an example in the book, there are several, I think, in the book, but in, in one of them, the target was um, uh, the destruction of Pompeii, you know, the, the volcanic eruption. And, uh, you know, as a typical experiment, all you really get is eight numbers, and the eight numbers refer to an envelope someplace that has the eight numbers on the outside of it. Uh, inside the envelope, there'll be a description of what the target is, destruction of Pompeii event or something like that, but you never get to see that. So you, you're totally blind. You start off with making um, uh, any, anything that comes to you uh, before the session, you write that down. Uh, then you, when you're given the numbers, 
you make what are called ideograms. You, with your pen on the paper, you make a quick little squiggle that is supposed to be completely intuitive and spontaneous, um, and it often it operates at a subconscious level. And the idea is that the motions encode at a subconscious level what you picked up from that number, from that target. Uh, then you start probing that ideogram in more detail and more care, and whatever pops into your mind, you try to uh, categorize and write down step by step. It's, it's a little bit like word association. I mean, you're really uh, trying to be as spontaneous as possible, uh, trying to put down whatever pops into your mind and to do it systematically and to move quickly so that you don't get any analytical uh, you know, your mind has no chance to go back and start analyzing. As you go through the, the steps, then you ask about the smells and, uh, you know, sounds and things like that. And so, again, it's, it's using your imagination, if you want to call it that. But uh, if you stop and just imagine um, that you can hear sounds, that then you might hear some birds you know, or something like that. And uh, so anyway, then there's a sketch of the place where you're asked to do a sketch. And oftentimes your hand just moves more or less randomly on the page. That's what I found I would do sometimes, almost like making little dots on the page. And then just see if a pattern starts to emerge from that. Um, one of the first things in that particular session that I got a glimpse of was an image of a Spanish-style house with a, a red uh, a clay roof. And um, so I wrote that down and drew a little sketch of it. Uh, within, within maybe a half an hour or so, what happens is you get deeper into the, the session and you get more and more specific information. Uh, what happens oftentimes is that the information comes as a paragraph. It comes as a, as a torrent of, of information faster and faster uh, if you're really on the signal line, on, on the correct uh, track. Um, toward the end, I was getting the sense of, of fear and something dangerous approaching. And there was a, a bright light in the sky in the distance, like from a mountain or something, and smoke. And something was approaching, and I saw Roman soldiers uh, building a barricade, you know, uh, as if they're trying to stop something from coming to us. And... Uh, and then the last, the last thing in the session was just the, the flash of, uh, of Pompeii and the volcanic event. Um, so I got the, the right target. And uh, you don't always get the right target. A lot of times you don't even know where you are. But even when you don't get the full information, you often get a feeling for what it is. It's almost like you're there anyway. In fact, there's no time. Like you're there it's like happening at that moment, even if you can't quite figure out uh, where it is. So it, it's a really uh, fascinating process. Now, there's a group of people that say that remote viewing continues within the intelligence apparatus of the United States. But some say that the government had abandoned it because it didn't work. Is the latter the story that's put out there because it was going to be leaked during the time where uh, Professor Brown was going to start talking about it? Well, yeah, it was not Courtney Brown who was talking. Um, there was a member in the program. One of, one, of the, one of the stories supposedly floating around is that one of the people in the program at the time uh, was working on a screenplay and uh, was planning to go public with the program, even though he was 
um, you know, in a top secret military program. Now, I don't know the details of whether this was true or not, um, but uh, when when the program uh, broke up, um, then there was a big nightline uh, show about a Ted Koppel, you know, and uh, uh, people pro and con came on and talked about why it was ending, etc. You have Jessica Utz's quote and other people's who indicate that um, it was working pretty well. Um, there's a quote by Congressman Rose that um, it makes a pretty cheap radar. <laughs> that, you know, this, this type of process, it would be a shame not to have something like that. So, um, you know, you have to kind of assume that they'd be foolish not to continue it under some guys, but I have no knowledge one way or the other. Uh, Courtney Brown was a professor at Emory University. He was not part of the program. But uh, Ed Dames, uh, who you may know from yes. Art, Bell's, Art Bell fame, uh, had been in the program as a monitor and had been on Art Bell quite a bit um, and talked about this stuff. And he was, uh, I think, uh, Courtney Brown's teacher, so he was one of those people who came out of the program and started his own school and taught other people. So, um, you know, it just kind of speeded up the whole process. And I have all of uh, Major Eight Dame's DVDs right here, just for the record, I started. But you have to devote, you have to com commit some time into this. You cannot just uh, watch the DVDs and expect to be a remote viewer by tomorrow. You have to really be committed. Or can you develop this rather quickly, Dr. Swanson? I don't know. I, I don't consider myself a very good remote viewer. I, I'm definitely in, in, the, in the average. Um, I, I've seen good remote viewers, but I'm not one of them. Uh, I, I think that um, the more you do it, I think it does help. Uh, certainly, I think following the procedure, getting the procedure down so you can do it quickly and stick to the rules is an important part of the process. So there's some practice uh, that you know, plays, plays a role in how well you can do. Um, one of the things the military uh, began doing was looking for people who'd had uh, previous uh, psychic experiences, who had out-of-body experiences, who'd had near-death experiences, uh, things like that, that the more uh, someone is familiar with the other side and being in that special zone or the special realm, uh, that those seem to be the most talented uh, people uh, for doing remote viewing. And the next topic of your book deals with extrasensory perception, or ESP, which takes me back to my interview with Dr. Edgar Mitchell a couple of years ago regarding a secret ESP experiment he conducted with NASA without telling his fellow astronauts in the mission. He tested whether it was possible to send a psychic message across the vacuum of space, across 200,000 miles of empty miles to human receivers or psychics on Earth. Can you talk about his findings? Well, it's pretty much the way you just described it. Um, he, um, because it was very difficult to um, <clears throat> take a deck of cards into the spacecraft, I, as I recall, he, he went ahead and, and selected cards kind of randomly and, and either wrote down how they came up, some sequence of, of, of picking the cards. And they were probably the Zener cards, not, um, not playing cards, but I'm, I'm not sure. But he had, so he had a sequence of cards that he had determined, and uh, they were written on a piece of paper. And so on the way back from the moon, uh, he pulled this out and um, began focusing on the sequence of cards. And it was at a prearranged time where 
there were four psychics, I believe, on the earth who had previously agreed with him to be in a receiving mode, and they began writing down what they received at the same time he was sending. And um, the bottom line was that um, that they were fairly successful, that their results were well above chance, and they published a paper about it, and it certainly indicated that you know, that the distance is not a not a handicap for ESP. And this is where this becomes even more fascinating. You mentioned a Czechoslovakian-born explorer with the name of uh, Dusan Gersai or Gersi. Uh, Gersi, uh huh, yeah. Gersi, who wrote, who wrote a book called uh, "Faces in the Smoke." He describes how many tribes use a form of ESP in communicating across great distances. There are tribes that use this. The question is, how did they learn this? And it's interesting how Western society or the industrial world considers these tribes, Aborigines, indigenous people, savages who stayed in the Stone Age. Yet, here they are using ESP to communicate across great distances. Please tell us more. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know. it. What it really leads you to is belief, the conclusion that we we moderns, we modern man have, have lost something. Yes. That that our education system, which is so heavily focused on uh, left brain education, adding, subtracting, uh, uh, letters and reading and writing with phonetics, things like that, a lot of rote work that we've lost something that many traditional cultures uh, have have retained just sort of naturally and is part of their normal teaching. So while if a child in the U.S. Uh, were to exhibit some kind of psychic ability, uh, the parents might freak out and take him to an exorcist or take him to a psychologist or, or tell them, no, that's impossible, and get you know, negative uh, feedback, while in ancient tribes or more traditional cultures, uh, that would be encouraged. They would be taught how to do that. They'd be encouraged. Uh, that is the primary skill of the shaman, of the wise man, who, of the medicine man in those tribes, and uh, some of the children in the tribe, the ones with the most uh, talent, would be trained and to develop the talents even more. But um, you know, I've talked to uh, people who are pretty much standard Western culture, but who were fortunate in that their parents did train them and encourage them in little games like this, little ESP games, when they were young. And they all tend to develop much more psychic ability as a result. There was never any shutting down or suppression of the ability. So, so I think it's a natural thing we all have, but uh, we can improve it with uh, with encouragement and practice. Um, but but you're right. Uh, Gersi has some wonderful examples in there. Uh, one involved the Tuareg, an African uh, in the Berber tribe in North Africa. They're you know, they, they 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 navigate across huge expanses of desert, hundreds and hundreds of miles of desert, where if you get lost, you die. And they go across these trips, and to them, every little sand dune, every little spot, they know where they are. And even though the sand dunes shift, somehow they're able to find their way. And he gives us this wonderful example of uh, meeting a man who's just kind of sitting in a spot in the middle of the desert, 
and he begins talking to him, and the man says, well, he's waiting for his friend who's coming from a different direction, who's been involved for you know, a couple of months or something, and um, the man had arranged to meet him there. Well, how do you know? How did you do that? Well, the man communicated to him in his mind, telepathically. And um, so uh, Gersey waited around out of curiosity a couple more days. Uh, basically, there was a... There were confirmations by dream and by uh, telepathy, and uh, in the days, the man who he was waiting for showed up exactly as predicted. So lots of examples like that to show that in traditional cultures, and this is true with the Aborigines of, uh, of Australia and other tribes as well, uh, ESP, psychic functioning, is, uh, is kind of a natural uh, means of communication. It's what they use in place of cell phones. And it's almost as if Western civilization and all the advent of technology is actually taking our our thinking away from us. For example, now we have, if you have a yacht or a boat, you use a GPS instead of uh, navigating with the stars. We don't, they don't teach that anymore because you depend on the GPS. What happens in the future? All of a sudden we get a... a, a, a an EP, an electromagnetic pulse bomb exploded on top of a major city or country. What happens to the knowledge if we don't know how to, in this case, we cannot communicate with other people because we depend on, on radios or, or navigating up on the ocean. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. Uh, you know, plus, as we see, uh, you can get other kinds of information from a psychic communication can give you more details and things like that that you might not get from your GPS reading. Um, but yeah, it's a, it, it's, it's really one of the great things that I hope we'll, you know, get, get back toward it and more toward encouraging in the future. And the next topic will sound in many people's minds as once again, science fiction that can only be seen in a superhero movie or comics like the X-Men psychokinesis mind over matter. And the person who comes to mind, Claude, right now is Uri Geller. We include yeah. a quote from, from Werner von Braun. He said, quote, Geller has bent my ring in the palm of my hand without even touching it. Personally, I have no scientific expl explanation for the phenomenon, unquote. And then Dr. Egan Mitchell says more or less the same thing. If we all have the cap cap capability, Claude, and, and can develop it with exercise and practice, how come there aren't many more Uri Gellers out there. Well, um, I mean, just like just like people who can throw 100, 100 mile an hour fastballs, mm -hmm. uh, it's possible I, I can throw a I can throw a baseball, but that doesn't mean I can throw it uh, 100 miles an hour. Uh, so there's always going to be people who can do it better, and some who are really gifted at it, and then the rest of us. You know, just do the best we can. We throw the ball, and it may or may not hit the plate. You know, but um, so I, there's a range of abilities. But but to me, people like Geller uh, because their experiments were so dramatic. Uh, they made the point. They got our attention. They made the point that hey, these things really happen. And um, you know, while on the one hand there were skeptics like the quote "Amazing Randy," yes. I won't even go into what I think of that. <laughs> I know, I know. They're, they're, they're trying to keep people in ignorance, you know, by, by basically lying, but you know, by using tricks, you know, by saying, well, it's just a broken spoon and 
sleight of hand, things like that. Well, you know, that that work, you know, Geller were the only person on the planet who ever was able to bend spoon. But, you know, in fact, uh, people uh, go to spoon parties. Uh, there are people who teach, teach classes in spoon bending, you know. And uh, I've, I've been to a, a spoon bending party where 100 people were there and 50 or 60 of them bent spoons, including the little 12-year-old sitting next to me. So, um, you know, if, if that shows that it's a universal ability, that we all have this ability, some more than others. And, um, of course, what the, the, the Princeton Pear Lab and other scientific groups did was take it to the next level. Um, they said, okay, um, let's make a scientific experiment out of it. Let's take a simple device uh, that can show change. It, it's a, it's a, like a coin flipper. You flip heads or tails. If you can make it land heads, that's a way of affecting it. And they made an, an electronic version of that and began testing people to see if they could make it land one way or the other. And they did this over and over again, hundreds of thousands, millions of experiments uh, to show that there's a real effect. Statistically, it's a very strong effect. Uh, in fact, they found out that you can affect this result when you're many, many miles away. The, the distance between you and the event is irrelevant. Um, so th this has been studied scientifically in the same way that the other subjects have been. And again, it all comes through that it's real. It's a genuine effect. And, and we all have it to some extent. And you spent some time with Anthony Robbins. Most of our audience probably knows who, who he is. I took some of his courses years ago, and, and I could even say that some of the motivation that was given to me for this show came from him. But you literally put your feet to the fire. You walked on fire. But as a scientist, you wanted to feel the, the heat, and that's something you should not have done. Explain what happened. Well... <laughs> I, I, I want to, you know, the wonderful thing about research and curiosity is it leads us to places we wouldn't otherwise go. Yes. And I have to say that um, I'm very, I feel, I feel gifted that, that I've had this, these projects like the two books I've, been, I've written um, to kind of give me an excuse and an encouragement to explore these things that I otherwise might not have. But I remember with Tony Robbins, I, I wanted to take his course, his Unlimited Power Weekend, mm -hmm. but it troubled me because I learned that, that you do the fire walk, which is you know barefoot across a 12-foot pit of, of hot coals. Um, you do that the first night. <laughs> I I'm thinking, wait a minute, I want to have the full training before you stick me on those hot coals. Right. And I remember I had a lot of fear uh, about that, you know. And I know there are lots of people who are good at controlling their minds, who can go into a state of mind and, and keep it. But I worry about my curiosity and my intellectual, that left brain side is always asking questions because that can cut in at the most embarrassing, inopportune times while you're walking across a fire pit. And, and so anyway, um, I remember actually arriving two hours late the first night of the event. Um, and it was not consciously, but it was mostly, I'm sure, I had a lot of fear 
And I, I got to the event two hours late, and I rush in, and I said, well, I'm two hours late, so I haven't had time to have the training. So I, got, I guess <laughs> right. I missed the firewalk, won't I? <laughs> and they said, they said, no, you'll be fine. Just go in that room there. And, and uh, the, 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 training, the training itself, I have to say, was really interesting. Uh, there was about an hour of training before doing the firewalk, and it involved what uh, Tony Robbins called, you know, it's, it's called NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming. Yes. Uh, basically, uh, you, you're led through some exercises where you say, okay, think of some, uh, the happiest moment of your life, you know, the birth of your first child, you know, or you win, you, you, you're just imagine that you just caught the touchdown pass in the Super Bowl, you know, and you get really excited, you know, and you start jumping up and down, and you have a partner who's watching you, and at the moment you're the most excited, he taps you on your left shoulder. And that creates what in NLP is called an anchor. You're associating that high enthusiasm with a physical um, event like a tap. Uh, so then he goes over this again, um, some other event. And again, excited as, as you possibly can be, and really euphoric, blissful. And then again, on that shoulder again, that's called stacking anchors. You want to have a whole lot of positive energy associated with that simple shoulder tap. Um, so that's, that was what we did for about an hour. And then we're led out to the fire pit. There were seven fire pits. I made sure I got Tony Robbins. I didn't want to have any helpers uh, right. you know, leading me. I wanted to make sure I had the very best help I could possibly get. And, um, you know, he looks at you and he says, okay, get excited now. Get you as excited as you possibly can be. And I would do my best. Um, but, you know, it was still kind of a challenge for me, and he would, he would push me to get more and more excited. And then when I finally was at the level he thought was enough, tapped me on the shoulder, said, go, and you walk across the fire pit. And you told, um, now don't look down at the fire. Don't try to sense how hot it is. What you're supposed to do is look up. You say, cool moss, cool moss to yourself. Because that's what that's what it feels like if you keep telling yourself that you're just walking across cool moss, and you move at a kind of brisk pace, you go to the end, and then at the end you can put your feet in a little pan of water, and, and then you're done. Um, the washes off any embers. However, uh, given my curiosity and my scientific nature, I'm walking across this fire pit, and I'm about two thirds of the way across it, and I'm thinking, cool moss, cool moss. You know, this this fire doesn't really feel hot. <laughs> hmm. And I said, I wonder if it's really hot. And so I dug my feet down into the fire pit to the degree that I could. I kept looking up, but I could see embers, red embers floating up from where I dug it. Hmm. And um, and then I walked to the end, and I thought my feet felt a little bit funny. Um, the next day, I had one little blister on one foot. I, I, I was one of 10 people out of 1,500 who had a small blister. But there was still nothing lasting. There was nothing damaging or anything. Um, so to me, it was a it was testimony, number one, that the mind has an amazing power to protect us in those events, even when you know we're so foolish as to... Uh, as to dig, ask questions where maybe we shouldn't be. So 
that's my story. Very interesting. And I like it, Claude, that you're not an armchair researcher. You do all these things. You remote view. You you walk on fire. It, just like I had uh, Graham Hancock a couple of weeks ago, and same thing. He goes out there, scuba dives hundreds of feet to find pyramids under the water because he wants to. He doesn't want to believe. He wants to know, just like you. But here's yeah. another very important topic: the Baxter effect, cell to cell communication. Cells have to communicate with each other in order to operate and to live. Define the Baxter effect. Uh, the Baxter effect, well, let's see, how would you say? Basically, it's, 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 it's the effect, it's, it's a psychic response of plants to thought or intention. Uh, that, um, that I'll, I'll give you the, the, an example of what happened that started uh, this whole research, and then that'll maybe describe the Baxter effect better. Cleve uh, Baxter was a very successful polygraph operator, uh, the lie detector machine operator, and he taught uh, people how to use the polygraph, including people like the CIA, how to use it properly. So he was a real world-class expert. And back in the 60s, he had an office in New York City. He thought his little house plant needed a drink, needed some water, but maybe because he'd been working late, you know, how we get them get a little fuzzy in the wee hours, and so thoughts occur to us that otherwise wouldn't. So he said, I wonder what would happen if I wired my house plant up to my polygraph machine and then give it a drink. Um, I wonder if it'll have emotions like a person, or will it just kind of change gradually from the conductivity changes like an inanimate object? Well, to his surprise, when he wired up the plant, he saw waves of emotion when he gave it the drink and it resembled the pattern of a person. So polygraph operators, you know, are trained to put their subject under stress. So without even thinking, the next thought in his mind was, what would happen if I burned its leaf? And it's kind of a mean thing, but that's how polygraph operators are not trained to, to think. And so it just popped into his mind instantaneously. He had not done anything to actually try to hurt the plant. But the moment the thought occurred in his mind, the trace on the polygraph machine went crazy. And it showed that the plant knew what he was thinking. And that really surprised him. So that's really the Baxter effect, is this ability of plants to sense our thoughts uh, and to respond to them. Uh, it started a 30-year program of research by Cleve Baxter and many other people, um, including a little experiment I did myself that I described in the book there. But, um, you know, Baxter had his plants wired up to polygraphs all the time uh, in his house, um, so he was constantly noticing things. Um, one experiment involved boiling shrimp, when you boil a live brine shrimp, they, of course, die, and that happens kind of suddenly. And when that death event occurred, he also saw a sharp response on the part of the, uh, the polygraph from the plant. Uh, or when he broke an egg into his dog's food bowl, uh, the plant responded. So they're, they're very empathic to other living things. And to many... This is so difficult to to understand, to comprehend. 
but this is scientifically proven, folks. And before we take our one and only intermission, and we're going to be talking on the way back, we're going to be talking about the organ transplant receivers or the donors. Claude, we've heard how plants, as you said, communicate uh, based on intention and so on. But before, I want to tell you folks, a quick parenthesis. I had a friend who passed away about 10 years ago, I mean, a couple of years ago. For 20 years, he was the recipient of a heart. A, uh, a teenager or a young person in the 20s died in a car accident, and, and my friend was the lucky recipient of the, the heart. All of a sudden, he started developing new tastes, spices, new foods, certain interests that he had no interest before. And he spoke to the family of the of the young man who who died, and they told him that that's exactly what he that the young man used to like. I used to hear of these stories before, and I thought they were urban legends, but this is my friend telling me. When we come back, I want you to tell me more about this. But I have to tell you, folks, if you are interested in opening your mind, and I always talk about great books, both of Dr. Swanson's books are absolutely superb. Many luminaries praise your book, Claude, as you know. Here's a quote from the late Dr. Eugene Jean Malov, whom he, we talk about him all the time and about his untimely death. He said, quote, I give this significant work my highest recommendation. It's a landmark book that deserves wide recognition. And like him, there's Dr. Richard Bartlett, Daniel Brinkley, Brad Steiger, Leah's, Dr. Leah Sprinkle, and many more. Another aspect I love about Dr. Swanson's books is that at the end of every chapter, he has a summary. First, he has a definition of what he's talking about at the beginning, and then a summary. For someone like you, graduated from MIT and Princeton, you write in a way that everyone can understand, which is a huge plus. So for the listeners, if you are always looking for books that can open your mind, your library, I'm telling you, will not be complete without Dr. Swanson's books. Claude, how do people get in touch with your work, and how do they buy your books? Uh, the best way, Mel, is to go on Amazon.com. If you go on Amazon.com, uh, under the, the books, and put my name, Claude Swanson, uh, uh, you know, on the, the author side, uh, it should pop up. Uh, if you have any trouble, uh, an easier way or an alternative way would be go to my website, which is www.synchronizeduniverse.com. And synchronized is with a Z, so it's synchronizeduniverse.com. If you go to the website, um, you'll find the links right there uh, to buy the book. And they take you back to Amazon again, but it's just an easier way. So uh, either way, it should be pretty you know, straightforward to locate on Amazon and uh, purchase it. And you can always go back to our website, veritasshow.com, and click on Dr. Cloud Sanson's guest page, and you'll find the links there as well. Dr. Swanson, I cannot tell you how much I'm enjoying this. There's so much more to talk about when we come back, folks, this is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. We're here with Dr. Cloud Swanson. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. If you're not a member, just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest of the show. As a member, have you subscribed to the iTunes link? Let iTunes download all segments of each new show automatically. There's a link in the members section. Just click on it and let iTunes do the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more. Enjoy.
This is Neil Kramer, and you are listening to The Veritas Show. Mm-hmm. 